Section 8 of Red Rubber, The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine E. Red Rubber, The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade on the Congo by Edmund Dean Morell. The Deeds, Part 1 Aufere trucidare rapere falsis imperium atque ubi solitudinem faciunt, pacem appellant. Tacitus, Agricola, 130 What they, by a misuse of terms, style government, is a system of pillage, murder, and robbery, and their so-called peace is a desert of their own creation. I reproduce below the comments upon Affairs of West Africa published in 1902, in which book four chapters were devoted to the affairs of the Congo, because they are typical of the difficulties which those of us who took up this matter were confronted, difficulties which are referred to in the opening chapter of the present volume. Author The state of affairs to which he calls attention in the latter portion of the book is indeed so terrible and the accusations which he does not hesitate to bring personally against King Leopold II are so grave that, notwithstanding the unfortunately too general apprehension entertained in well-informed West African circles that there exists very solid ground for criticism, we hesitate, without independent investigation, to give further currency to his assertions. If Mr. Morell is accurately informed, there is hardly a condition of its the Congo State's charter, that it has not broken, nor a law of common humanity, which it has not flouted. The sufferings of which the picture was given to the world in Uncle Tom's cabin are as nothing to those which Mr. Morrell presents to be the habitual accompaniment of the acquisition of rubber and ivory by the Belgian companies. The Times, December 19, 1902 Sir Harry Johnston in the Daily Chronicle, December 20, 1902. Mr. Morell's indictment is one of the most terrible things ever written, if true. Within the last few months only have the closest students of the Congo question been in a position to appreciate to the full the staggering volume of records to the continuity and uniformity of outrage and the all-pervading cause of outrage on the Congo. Many of the data here summarized are unknown save to the comparatively few persons who are subscribers to the Congo Reform Association, in whose monthly journal they have been recorded. Others now appear for the first time. In the main, the records here given are but the briefest and baldest summaries. If the whole of them were to be set down, a book double the size of the present one would hardly suffice to contain them. My object, or one of them, is to show how unbroken is the tale of horror, how dreadful the similarity. We see precisely the same scenes described by men thousands of miles apart, and with many years' interval between them. Records from 1890 to 1893 Letter from Colonel Williams, read out to a London meeting by Mr. R. Cobden Phillips, 
representing the Manchester Chamber of Commerce on November 4, 1890. Extract. Area. Presumably Upper River Banks. Your Majesty's government has been, and is now, guilty of waging unjust and cruel wars against natives, with the hope of securing slaves and women to minister to the behest of Your Majesty's government. In such slave-hunting raids, one village is armed against the other, and the force thus secured is incorporated with the regular troops. March 1891 Letters from correspondents in the Congo read out to Manchester Geographical Society by Mr. E. Sowerbutz, the secretary. Letters speak of atrocities by Congolese troops, women and children seized as prisoners, etc., in this diabolical and unholy so-called civilizing work. Area, probably cataract region. In 1891, the secret decree appropriating the produce of the soil and calling upon officials to devote all their energies to collecting revenue is issued together with the regulations and circulars which followed it. See last chapter. The immediate effects of the regulations and circulars are chronicled in letters from Belgian and French traders in the Upper Congo. Letters dated 1891 and 1892 published for the first time in 1904. Area, Riverbanks and Central Region. Yambaya, February 6, 1891. The country is ruined. Passengers in the steamers Roi de Belge have been able to see for themselves that from Bontia, half a day's journey below our factory at Opoto, to Buombo inclusive, there is not an inhabited village left that is to say, four days steaming through a country formerly so rich, today entirely ruined. Gonga Dona, October 20th. Thanks to the proceedings of the state, we cannot travel three hours in a canoe without coming across a hostile village. This is the way they go on. They go to a village and say to the chief, If by noon three tusks of ivory are not here for us to buy, you are no longer our friend. At noon the chief arrives and says, I have only two, or as the case may be. If that is the case, replies the representative of the state, we will see. The whole party then springs on shore and endeavors to make prisoners. That having been accomplished, the chief is told, Come with so many tusks, and your men and women will be returned to you. Basankusu, September 17, 1892. The villages are compelled to pay heavy taxes in rubber. They are compelled to furnish so many kilos to the state every week. To give you an idea, the state has received 1,060 kilos in one month and a half. The state had made war upon the villages from Lulonga to Basankusu. All the villages in the Moringa suffered the same fate. Likini, October 15th. After the wars with the Mambatis and the Bokondo, when the state people took many prisoners, which the Mambatis redeemed with ivory, they have begun the same proceedings again. To buy ivory in this way does not need many goods, and has the merit of simplicity. Four days ago they started making war once more. Thirteen killed, six prisoners. October 18th 
the frequent wars upon the natives undertaken without any cause by the state soldiers sent out to get rubber and ivory are depopulating the country. The soldiers find that the quickest and cheapest method is to raid villages, seize prisoners, and have them redeemed afterwards against ivory. At Bokonja they took thirty prisoners, whom they released upon payment of ten tusks. Each agent of the state receives one thousand pounds, commission per ton of ivory secured, and one hundred seventy-five pounds per ton of rubber. Yambaya, March twenty-three, eighteen ninety-three. The majority of natives in every village are fleeing to the forests on account of the perpetual troubles with the state. Such was the immediate result of the official instructions to raid ivory and rubber on commission the early beginnings of the system, which was to prevail for fifteen years, and which still prevails. Records from 1894 to 1898 Glave, E.J., an independent English traveller, formerly with Stanley, who speaks very highly of him, crossed the Congo from the Great Lakes to the ocean in 1894-5. His voluminous diary published by the Century Magazine in 1896. Area, the whole country traversed. The white officer at Kamambare has commissioned several chiefs to make raids on the country of the Warua and bring him slaves. They are supposed to be taken out of slavery and freed, but I fail to see how this can be argued out. They are taken from their villages and shipped south to be soldiers, workers, etc., on the stations, and what were peaceful families have been broken up, and the different members spread about the place. This is no reasonable way of settling the land. It is merely persecution. The brutal action of the soldiers so terrified the people that many fled into hiding, and have not since returned. Not content with this, the soldiers steal everything on the plantations and in the houses. If the rightful owners object they are beaten, the women taken by force. In stations in charge of white men, government officers, one sees strings of poor, emaciated old women, some of them mere skeletons, working from ten to six, tramping about in gangs with a rope around their necks, and connected by a rope one and a half yards apart. They are prisoners of war." Expeditions have been sent in every direction, forcing natives to make rubber and to bring it to the stations. Up the Ikelemba, away to Lake Mantumba, the state is perpetrating its fiendish policy in order to obtain profit. War has been waged all through the district of the equator, and thousands of people have been killed and homes destroyed. Many women and children were taken, and twenty-one heads were brought to Stanley Falls, and have been used by Captain Rom as a decoration round a flower-bed in front of his house. Most white officers out in the Congo are averse to the India rubber policy of the state, but the laws command it. If the Arabs had been the masters, it would have been styled iniquitous trafficking in human flesh and blood, but being under the administration of the Congo Free State, it is merely a part of their philanthropic system of liberating the natives. Schöblom, a Swedish missionary of the American Baptist Missionary Union. 
In conjunction with an Englishman in the same mission, Banks, Sjöblom had complained with great vehemence locally and caused furious resentment to the Governor-General, Baron Wahis, who threatened him with five years' imprisonment. Through the intermediary of Mr. Fox Bourne, he appealed to the world at the public meeting in London, May 12, 1897. His experiences cover 1895-97. to 97. Area Central region. The following are extracts from his statements. The natives in inland towns are, as a matter of custom, asked whether they are willing to gather India rubber. The question put to them is not, will you live at peace together? Will you acknowledge the Congo government? It is, will you work India rubber? Well, many of the people are killed, and they try suddenly to disband, and refuse to bring the India rubber. Then war is declared. Describes the usual procedure adopted. Within his knowledge, forty-five towns have been burnt down. Describes the sentry system, the soldiers stationed in the villages, living on the people, and driving the adult males into the forest to gather India rubber. Narrates how he visited a village at sunset. The people had never seen a white man, and had returned from their hunt for rubber. As he was speaking to them, a soldier rushed in among the crowd and seized an old man guilty of having been fishing in the river instead of gathering rubber, shoots him before Sjöblom's eyes, right hand cut off. People flee out of the town. All except the old chiefs are forced to go away and work rubber. The sentries are from the wildest tribes. When they get to this work, they are many times worse. They are really small kings in the towns, and often kill the people for the sake of the rubber. If the rubber does not reach the full amount required, the sentries attack the natives. They kill some and bring the heads to the commissioner. Others are brought to the commissioner as prisoners. Hundreds are constantly taken down in large steamers. From this village I went on to another, where I met a soldier who pointed to a basket and said to me, Look, I have only two hands. He meant there were not enough to make up for the rubber he had not brought. He had several prisoners tied to trees. When I came back, some of the villages were in an uproar. When I reached the river, I turned and saw that the people had large hammocks in which they were gathering the rubber to be taken to the commissioner. I also saw smoked hands, and the prisoners waiting to be taken to the commissioner. This is only one of the places in which these practices occur. There is a small island in the stream at Lake Mantumba. The people had not been able to bring in the full amount of rubber. The officers with some soldiers went along there. Several of the natives were killed. I saw the dead bodies floating on the lake with the right hand cut off, and the officer told me when I came back why they had been killed. It was for the rubber. In fact, the officers have always freely told me about the many who were killed, and always in connection with India rubber. In one village which I passed through, I saw two or three men on the wayside, quite recently killed, about an hour before. The sentry who had to oversee the gathering of the rubber told me they had killed the men because they had not brought in the rubber. When I crossed the stream, I saw some dead bodies hanging down from the branches in the water. As I turned away my face at the horrible sight, 
one of the native corporals, who was following us down, said, "'Oh, that is nothing. A few days ago I returned from a fight, and I brought the white men one hundred sixty hands, and they were thrown into the river.' I have seen extracts of letters in which the writers have freely told about hundreds being killed, hundreds of hands brought by the sentries, hundreds of slaves being taken, and one of the state officials said to a resident agent, I have two hundred slaves here, do you want some? Another agent told me that he had himself seen a state officer at one of the outposts pay a certain number of brass rods, local currency, to the soldiers, for a number of hands they had brought. One of the soldiers told me the same. That was about the time I saw the native killed before my own eyes. The soldier said, Don't take this to heart so much. They kill us if we don't bring the rubber. The commissioner has promised us, if we have plenty of hands, he will shorten our service. I have brought him plenty of hands already, and I expect my time of service will soon be finished. Mr. Sherblom also gave many particulars of the monstrous demands for food, fish, etc. upon the people, the fines inflicted upon them for shortage, their general condition of impoverishment, etc. Campbell, Dugland, a missionary belonging, I believe, to a Scotch Presbyterian mission. He laboured for about a quarter of a century in the southeastern portion of the state, Katanga, his voluminous reports to Mr. Foxbourne cover a very extensive period. Those I am about to quote cover the period 1891 to 1898, published in 1904. Area, Southeastern Region. Mr. Campbell subsectionalizes his report into the Ivory Regime, the Rubber Regime, Treatment of Natives, the Sentry System, etc. Under Treatment of Natives, he writes... This is, and ever has been, shocking, and the cause of revolts, troubles, and, when possible, exodus into the territories of other powers. The treatment of the downtrodden natives since state occupation has brought about a moral and material degeneration. Through the gross and wholesale immorality and forcing of women and girls into lives of shame, African family life and its sanctities have been violated, and the seeds of disease sown broadcast over the Congo state are producing their harvest already. Formerly native conditions put restrictions on the spread of disease and localized it to small areas, but the 17,000 soldiers moved hither and thither to districts removed from their wives and relations to suit Congo policy must have women wherever they go, and these must be provided from the district natives. Native institutions, rights, and customs which one would think ought to be the basis of good government are ignored. Among the incidents he gives characterizing the ivory regime, I quote the following. After that, Kataro, another very large chief living near the apex of the western and eastern Lualaba, was attacked. The crowds were fired into promiscuously, and fifteen were killed, including four women and a babe on its mother's breast. The heads were cut off and brought to the officer in charge, who then sent his men to cut off the hands also, and these were pierced, strung, and dried over the campfire. The heads, with many others, I saw myself. The town, prosperous ones, was burnt, 
and what they could not carry off was destroyed. Crowds of people were caught, mostly old women and young women, and three fresh rope gangs were added. These poor prisoner gangs were mere skeletons of skin and bone, and their bodies cut frightfully with a chicot when I saw them. Choyombo's very large town was next attacked. A lot of people were killed, and heads and hands were cut off and taken back to the officers. Shortly after, the state caravans, with flags flying and bugles blowing, entered the mission station at Luanza, on Lake Mueru, where I was then alone, and I shall not soon forget the sickening sight of deep baskets of human heads. These baskets of war trophies were used for a big war dance, to which was added the state quota of powder and percussion caps. I made a journey myself to the copper hills in the west, to the caves, to Ntenkes, Ktangas, Makakas, and Katekes, all in South Lamba, and found the sentries everywhere living like kings, plundering, killing, and burning villages in the name of the state. I append a list of the villages and chiefs at sentry posts known to me, and each manned by two black soldiers. Here follow twenty villages, with their localities, etc., each of these posts was manned, as stated, by two black soldiers to look after state interests, chiefs, and ivory. Perhaps you will say, why did you not speak out and report all this? My first experience in Katanga was Captain X's threat to imprison my colleague for denouncing these doings. Every time I made representations, they were declared impossible, or the answer was, I will ask my head sentry to make inquiries the head sentry being one of the worst blackguards in the country. Nothing was ever proved. He would not believe his soldiers could be guilty of such misconduct, or, well, they must have carte blanche, or the natives would not respect the state. Sometimes might is right, would be the curt reply. What could one say? There were no judges or courts of appeal, and the officer, often at his wit's end, would say, What can I do? I must get ivory. I have no law or regulation book. I am the only law and only god in Katanga. Under the rubber regime, similar stories are given, always with an abundance of names, places, etc. Here are a few short extracts. Meanwhile, on the Luapula, similar abuses existed, and women were raped and made to serve both white and black, until many of the best and biggest villages crossed into British territory, where they live in peace, follows a long list of the villages which have migrated. The wholesale exodus is due to Belgian raiding, the sentry system, and the maltreatment of the natives. Under the sentry system, Mr. Campbell says, I have known them tie up chiefs for a week in ropes, and keep them tied until a sufficient ransom was brought. I have met them on the road on plundering expeditions, travelling in hammocks with from twenty to thirty carriers, these of course impressed into the work, besides other carriers who carried their pots, cloth, provisions and guns wherever they went. It was a common practice to remove sentries who were unsuccessful in securing sufficient ivory, and to replace them by others, more ruffianly disposed, whose ivory-extorting powers had been previously tested. Banks, 
of the American Baptist Missionary Union, reporting locally from the Bolengi of 1896, area, central region. Describes raid of state troopers upon the villages of Bandaka, Wajiko. Cause, poor quality of rubber. Questions soldiers, and is told fifty people have been killed and twenty-eight taken prisoners. Sees the prisoners taken through the mission station. Counts, sixteen women tied, neck to neck. Some of these women carrying their tiny children. Several young children were walking on before who were also prisoners. Visits the raided village. In a little shed lay one of my late school children, a promising young lad. I lifted the leaves by which he was covered, and saw his right hand cut off. I then went through the village, and saw the people burying their dead. I counted over twenty bodies, and newly filled up graves. All the bodies had the right hand cut off. Kenred Smith, of the British Baptist Missionary Society, testified before the Commission of Inquiry in 1904 as to atrocities committed in 1893. Extract from Letter to the Author, published this year in C.R.A. Organ. Area, Central Region. I thought that all evidence submitted to the members of the Commission would be given in due course to the public, and was not therefore too careful in making manuscript notes of my remarks before it. Happily, I have notes. I submitted them to them, and now send you the substance of my remarks. Details. Expedition sent on June 2, 1898, by local agent of the Anversois, Vida Section 4, to punish people who sought to escape the rubber tax. Villages of Mika and Bosomakuma attacked. Men, women, and children killed and mutilated. Village of Bosolo then attacked, and became, according to native evidence, a veritable shambles visited Mika and saw mutilated bodies or parts of bodies representing some twenty people, and new-made graves bringing up the number to at least thirty. Native evidence placed before him showed two hundred people killed. A cannibal feast followed the slaughter. Complained locally. So far as he knows, no action taken. Clark Joseph of the American Baptist Missionary Union Extracts from his diary, personal correspondence, and reports to local officials from 1894 to 1899. The complete documents were handed to the Congo Commission in 1904, and suppressed together with all other documentary evidence brought home by that commission. They are now made public for the first time here, with Dr. Babur's permission. The area from which Mr. Clark writes is the Domaine de la Corone, and this account, together with Mr. Scrivener's, which will be referred to later, will show an appreciative public how the regenerator of Africa obtains his revenues. Ikoko, Clark's mission station, represented in diary and letters in 1893 as a large town, beautifully situated in a bay which, say, 4,000 people within a radius of one and a half miles from the mission station. The people are fine-looking, bold and active. In 1894, the district first came under the influence of the philanthropic monarch, Leopold II. Large demands for rubber principally are made, 
also for fish and forced labor for the state plantations of Bicoro. Outrages commence. November 15, 1894. Seven Erebus were foully murdered about half an hour from here. They had been tied and brutally shot when unable to move away from their murderers. My only hope under present rule is for us to try to put the information into the hands of the American ambassador and try to get him to personally lay the reports before Leopold II. I do not think he can know of what is being done in his name. To a correspondent. November 28th. The state soldiers brought in seven hands and reported having shot the people in the act of running away to the French side. To a correspondent in Scotland. December 8th. A year ago we passed or visited between Irubu and Ikoko the following villages. Here follow the names of eight villages with probable population of each, total 3,180. A week ago I went up, and only at Ngero, one of the villages in the list, were there any people. There we found ten. To a correspondent. April 12, 1895. I am sorry that rubber palavers continue. Every week we hear of some fighting, and there are frequent rows, even in our village, with the armed and unruly soldiers. During the past twelve months it has cost more lives than native wars and superstitions would have sacrificed in three to five years. The people make this comparison among themselves. It seems incredible and awful to think of these savage men armed with rifles and let loose to hunt and kill people because they do not get rubber to sell at a mere nothing to the state, and it is blood-curdling to see them returning with hands of the slain and to find the hands of young children amongst bigger ones evidencing their bravery. To a correspondent. May 3rd. The war was on account of the rubber. The state demands that the natives shall make rubber and sell same to its agents at a very low price. The natives do not like it. It is hard work and very poor pay, and takes them away from their homes into the forest, where they feel very unsafe, as there are always feuds among them. The rubber from this district has cost hundreds of lives, and the scenes I have witnessed while unable to help the oppressed have been almost enough to make me wish I were dead. The soldiers are themselves savages, some even cannibals, trained to use rifles, and in many cases they are sent away without any supervision, and they do as they please. When they come to a town, no man's property or wife is safe, and when they are at war, they are like devils. Imagine them returning from fighting some rebels, see on the bow of the canoe is a pole, and a bundle of something on it. These are the hands, right hands, of sixteen warriors they have slain. Warriors! Don't you see among them the hands of little children and girls? I have seen them. I have seen where the trophy has been cut off while the poor heart beats strongly enough to shoot the blood from the cut arteries at a distance of fully four feet. To a correspondent in America. May. All the fighting about us on the lake for, say, eight months has been on account of the rubber 
to a correspondent in America. May 17th. Nearly all Ikoko is in the bush. This everlasting rubber palaver is sending lots into eternity, and many to live like wild beasts in the woods, where they are afraid to make a fire for fear of attracting the man-hunters, i.e. the soldiers. To a correspondent. May 28th. Kindly let me appeal to you again on behalf of Ikoko that the tax of rubber may be taken off. To Commissaire Fieves. Footnote. In the official bulletin for June 1896, there is a eulogistic report on the admirable assiduity of this official in obtaining rubber. It tells us that the district under his administration produced in 1894 650 tons of rubber, bought at two and a half pence, European price, and sold at five shilling five pence per kilo in Antwerp. End of footnote. June 5. 1895. There is a matter I want to report to you regarding the Nkakent sentries. You remember some time ago they took eleven canoes and shot some Ikoko people. As a proof, they went to you with some hands, of which three were the hands of little children. We heard from one of their paddlers that one child was not dead when its hand was cut off, but did not believe the story. Three days after we were told that the child was still alive in the bush. I sent four of my men to see, and they brought back a little girl whose right hand had been cut off, and she left to die of the wound. There was no other wound. As I was going to see Dr. Rusus about my own sickness, I took the child to him, and he has cut the arm and made it right, and I think she will live but I think such awful cruelty should be punished. To M. Mueller, Shefta District, Bicoro. June 7th. How many people have been slain for the sake of rubber, I cannot tell, but the number is large. To a correspondent. March 25, 1896. This rubber traffic is steeped in blood and if the natives were to rise and sweep every white person on the upper Congo into eternity, there would still be left a fearful balance to their credit. Is it not possible for some American of influence to see the king of the Belgians and let him know what is being done in his name? The lake is reserved for the king, no traders allowed, and to collect rubber for him hundreds of men, women, and children have been shot. To a correspondent. The Congo government in Brussels, e.g. the king, denied the existence of its royal preserve until 1902. The proceeds are handled by the king exclusively and are not paid into the so-called public revenues of the Congo state. Vida section 4. The exasperated natives turn upon their destroyers. April 15th. Two white men and about 50 soldiers killed by the Montaka natives on the lake. Ikoko and Ngero are the only important villages not in arms, all caused through the rubber demand and mode of operation. To a correspondent. November 2, 1895. Some fighting in Ikoko two weeks ago. Two old men, one old woman, one girl, 
and two children killed. The old woman's hand was cut off. I saw the body. One child of about two and a half or three years of age had been struck over the stomach with the butt of a gun, and then thrown into the water, and a younger child had been no doubt treated in the same way, but its body was not found. A young girl, about ten, was with them, and she had been beaten and thrown into the water and died. The woman had been stabbed after being taken prisoner. The old woman was shot. To a correspondent. We have seen that in 1893 Ikoko had a population of 4,000 souls. I complete these particular extracts with the following appeal to Lieutenant de Baruch, commissaire, dated May 5, 1899. I desire to pray you that some alteration be made in the present state demands on Ikoko, or before long there will be no people here but those attached to the mission. Now, probably, there are not over six hundred of all ages of people in the town and fishing camps. There is not one native chief of influence. While I have been here, there have been four chiefs of considerable force, but two of them were shot, and the other two were several times in the chain, and at last died in the town here. At present, the death rate is very great, because the people are badly nourished. Such is the story of Ikoko and neighborhood. End of section 8